Welcome to Diverse, the podcast for the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Are you taking full advantage of your SWE membership? Your membership grants you access to SWE advanced learning for career and life. Your membership unlocks free and discounted on-demand content 24 hours a day from around the world. The SWE Advanced Learning also has live learning. With multiple tracks, Advance offers something for every career and every stage of your career. SWE's many offerings feature subject matter experts from a wide variety of thought leaders in STEM and leadership. When you want to skill up, turn to Advance first. Access learning at advancelearning.swe.org. Hi, welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. I'm Ann Perusik, Director of Editorial and Publications for the Society of Women Engineers. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on social media. Visit swe.org for more details. Today's episode is part of SWE's Black History Month commemoration. With me today is Vi Brown, a SWE past president, fellow and entrepreneur. Vi was a charter member of the Howard University SWE Collegiate Section, graduating from there with a bachelor's and master's in chemical engineering. Vi spent 20 years working in corporate America before starting her own firm, Prophecy Consulting Group. She is also the founder and owner of Vi Brown Speaks. Vi has an MBA from Arizona State University and has held many leadership positions in SWE in addition to her term as president. Welcome Vi, I'm so pleased to be having a conversation with you today. Thank you, Anne. I'm also pleased uh, to see what path we take in this journey of discussion. <laughs> yes, so today we are discussing an article that Vi wrote for SWE Magazine titled a Segregation of Memory, the 1921 Tulsa Riot. The article was part of our Black History Month coverage in the winter 2003 issue of the magazine, nearly 20 years ago already. But it's such an important topic. Vi, can you tell us how you came to learn the history of Tulsa's Black Wall Street? Yeah, and it was probably around 2002 when I was sitting in the chair of my hairstylist, Chalzetta Lee, and she's a native of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we were just sharing some things about how we grew up. And, you know, I grew up in South Carolina. She grew up in Oklahoma. I've never been to Oklahoma. So I was asking her, well, what is it like? What does it look like? She was describing some of the details. And we got into the history of what was it like to be a black person growing up in Oklahoma. And that's when she started telling about the history of the uh, Black Wall Street and the historical record that Black Wall Street had for the Tulsa community and the country. And it was well known, but a lot of people didn't know that. I had never heard of Black Wall Street. So I said, well, tell me a little bit more about that. It's kind of odd that I've never heard that before. She says, well, you know, it was destroyed. And I went, what? And then she got into the story about the Tulsa race riot. And I was just stunned because, first of all, I thought I was well-versed or at least knew enough of 
Black history in the United States that I should know or have heard about Black Wall Street. And then I also should have heard about the Tulsa race riot. And I had not heard of either. And so suffice it to say, I was getting a haircut and a history lesson at the same time. Right. And when you proposed this idea for the magazine, I had never heard of it either. And I really like history. And I took many, many history courses and never anything about either the riot or even the existence of the Black Wall Street. That's true. And what we know today is that a lot of history, and I'm not going to just say African-American history, because I believe there's a lot of women's history. It's been left out of the history books. Hopefully, going forward for those companies that publish textbooks or individual publishers, we will know more about things like this as opposed to generic information that's been provided over the years. Right, right. Well, so can you walk us through a little bit more? So we know that there was this very prosperous area, the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa had amazing amount of success. There were even it was entirely composed of African-Americans who were essentially confined to this neighborhood, but they really prospered. I know that there were individuals who at that time had their own private planes, for example. But can you tell us a little bit more, not just about Greenwood, but the incident that sparked the riot? Well, one of the things that I want to share with the audience is that let's recall that In 1865, a number of Blacks, most of the Blacks in Texas, did not know about the Emancipation Proclamation that had been issued in 1863. So from 1865 forward, many Blacks left Texas. Some went north, but many went west. And Oklahoma was one of those states, California another, that they went to. So this follows the emancipation of slaves in this country. And a community grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you have to remember, Oklahoma is relatively a new territory compared to the rest of the United States that was east on the East Coast. So you had a little bit of everything going on. You know, it was an outback coast, as many people described it. But somehow or another, it became a thriving community for African-Americans. And even though they were restricted to just a few small blocks within the Tulsa neighborhood, They were doing very well, prospering, and Oklahoma was also booming with the oil industry because oil had been discovered in this area, and that brought a lot of people to Oklahoma as well. So what happens, as they tell, the story is told, on May 31st, 1921, a shoeshine guy, his name is uh, Dick Rollins, goes into the Drexel building to use the bathroom, and the bathroom was on the top floor. In order to get to the top floor, he has to take a lift elevator. That's what they had at the time. Not the, I guess Otis elevator wasn't uh, invented by, at that time. So he has to take a lift elevator and they had elevator operators. None of this was uncommon because that's how things worked back then. The elevator operator's name is Sarah Page and she opens the door to let him in. He starts into the elevator, but she starts the, uh, lift, the, the lift up mechanism at the same time. And he literally had to jump in or, you know, be injured by trying to get into the elevator. But in doing so, he accidentally knocks her or hits her and she falls and screams. Whether or not they ever got to the top of the escalator, I don't know. But once the door opened, I guess he feared that he had done something wrong. So he ran out the door. Now, 
Sarah Page, the elevator operator, said, no, I'm not hurt. Nothing was done inappropriately. When the elevator lurched, we both, you know, kind of fell or swung back and forth. I'm fine. He did not hurt me. Well, that was on Monday, May 31st. But by the time the news traveled the next day on Tuesday, June 1st, the story was that Rollins had scratched this woman. He had torn off her clothes. And according to some, the newspaper had printed that he had raped her. So there was a mob building and they demanded that Rollin be arrested. And, you know, of course, uh, he be tried for what he had done. At the time, the sheriff's office said, we have everything under control. There really was no issue here. We'll just take care of everything and that'll be it. Unfortunately, things got out of control. And once the shoving or the name calling started, before long, an angry mob came in. They wanted to get a hold of Mr. Rollins and a gunshot was fired. And they just went on a, a carnage of burning and destroying the Greenwood neighborhood. And didn't that take place over a period of just a few hours, if I remember correctly? It was just a few hours, but just yeah. to say 24 hours from when the incident happened to 24 hours later, the neighborhood was burned, had been burned down. It was carnage. Yeah. And it sounds unbelievable, but at the same time, very believable. I remember one of the things I read was that after this took place, that there was a conclusion reached by, I don't know, the sheriff, some commission, something that said the whole problem was something like an impudent Negro and a hysterical woman. And like neither of those things were the case. You know, the elevator operator doesn't sound one bit hysterical, you know, and of course, understanding the attitudes of the time, you know, if you realize that this accident took place in the elevator and that you were going to be essentially found guilty, you take off and run, too. Exactly. That basically there was no excuse for what happened. The best that I can come to is that that was the best excuse that person could give at the time for what happened. Chris asked, nobody really wanted to own up to what happened. Maybe in some cases they didn't know what happened, other than at some point people took leave of their senses and it got crazy. Yes. And it fanned, the, you know, any tensions that were already there, you know, perhaps resentment for the prosperity of the Greenwood neighborhood. You know, I can't imagine that that would have been a factor. You know, all of those tensions just got inflamed, you know, in a really small period of time. That is a possibility. We'll never know. But once again, let's think about what Tulsa was at the time. It was an outpost. You had outlaws. You had folks uh, on the uh, criminals on the loose. You had the Indian Territory, the Creek Indians. And then you had folks who were out there uh, panning or drilling for oil. You had all kinds of things going on. And so you probably had a lot of disgruntled individuals, depending on where they were, their state, their status in life. Mm -hmm. And perhaps what was happening for them business-wise and what wasn't happening for them business-wise. But it's so, it's very easy to become angry with someone else when things aren't going right for you. That's for sure. I mean, and I don't want to engage like in just speculation, but fortunately, we don't have to engage in much speculation because eventually a commission was established to truly investigate this incident, which 
I want to get to in a minute. What I thought was so interesting in learning this history was that despite all of this destruction and the deaths and so many of the survivors leaving, that within a few years, Greenwood was rebuilt. And in the 1930s and 40s, it became like a leading jazz center. But as that happened, another thing happened, which some historians have called a conspiracy of silence. And I'd really like to spend some time talking about what do they mean by a conspiracy of silence? I believe that oftentimes it's difficult to talk about difficult topics in our history. We're, and what's so interesting, Anne, we're having this conversation right now as it relates to history in the United States and how the country developed. And as I mentioned to you earlier, our history isn't always the bravado and the uh, exceptionalism that uh, some like to proclaim. We've had uh, our share of issues and struggles from day one when the Declaration of Independence, or when the colonialists declared emancipation from England, you know, back in 70, 1776, there's been all kinds of things going on. You have to also remember that it was the thinking of the time that white males were in charge and they basically made decisions for everyone, including women. So you had a lot of things going on here. But the other thing I would say is that let's go back to Greenwood and however Greenwood became prosperous. African-Americans were not allowed to just walk around by going to any store that they wanted to travel anywhere they wanted to within this area. So they were in a way forced to do business with each other, but they did it very well. Now we get to the point where why all of a sudden we have this incident that occurred, no one wants to talk about it. Maybe there was some shame. I have to say that there might've been some shame. Perhaps there are still some angry folks. And I think that just sometimes it's just better that we not talk about some things because that's the attitude that a lot of people take. Maybe they don't have answers. I don't have an answer. I can't tell you why that happened. So my, it's best that we not talk about it. Or I'll just pretend that it didn't happen at all. Right. Sweep it under it. the rug. Sweep, sweep it, it under, under the rug. rug. <laughs> yeah. 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 But of course, we know that doesn't really work. Well, it doesn't. And that's what happened uh, when even engaging in the conspiracy of silence. There was that echo <laughs> that continued to resonate over the years about what happened. Everyone didn't leave Tulsa who witnessed that incident. And then those that left, I'm sure that they told others about it, who, you know, whether they moved to California, they moved to Chicago, wherever they went to, they told about what they saw and what they had seen and what they heard. So it didn't just go away because no one wanted to talk about it. And that's true. I was laughing about uh, some many incidences that occurred in the workplace where we just won't discuss a problem that's troublesome to the entire organization as if it causes it to go away. Well, in a similar way, it's similar with this. It was more of a public issue, but it's similar. Right. So it took up until 1997 when the Tulsa Race Riot Commission was established by the state legislature to do a thorough investigation of what happened. And so that's quite a, a number of years from the incident to the actual serious gathering of information. You know, a lot of things probably were lost in those ensuing years. But why don't you talk a little bit about what this Race Riot Commission then found? 
my understanding is that they went through to try to find any documentation that they could that might have been written in any of the newspapers. And if there were, we'd say, newspapers that were from the white presses, there may have been, and I would think that Greenwood had someone publishing in their area. So there would have been uh, information, not just from the what was going on in Tulsa, but perhaps local states. So they tried to find information in print. And as I mentioned, the newspaper at the time, when they went to the microfiche, the area that covered the story on the riot had been removed. So you have to wonder, well, why was that? So there was a lot of missing information. They interviewed as many people as they could. These are descendants or folks who lived, descendants of people who lived there at the time to either get their understanding, what they were told, who said what, you know, let's retell the history. And then the other thing that they did was they actually went to certain areas and attempted to dig or see if they could find any type of artifacts, including buried graves, because there was report of um, mass graves that were dug at the time uh, to bury the dead from the folks who uh, were killed by the riot. And I think that the number is roughly 300 people. It's really not exactly known how many people died in this race riot. So there was much that was known, but there was much that wasn't known. But one of the things that they did confirm is that it did happen. Right. And there is photo documentation to confirm that as well. When we were developing your article back in 2003, we were given access to the photos that were in an archive uh, specifically about the Tulsa race riot. And frankly, there was only one photo that I published with the article, and it showed burning buildings and people fleeing. But the rest of the images were really very gruesome in terms of the very terrible ways people died and the aftermath. So the photos are a really vivid, I think, testament to at least part of what took place. Yes. And unfortunately, what I remind folks is that this happened in Tulsa, but there were incidences that occurred across the country from one time or another, from, we'll say, uh, post-slavery through the Reconstruction era, through the 1920s. And this Tulsa was not the first city that experienced this, but it was perhaps one of the worst examples of carnage that occurred because of unrest that occurred between uh, uh, the difference in the races or ethnic groups. And I think one thing about Tulsa that might be a bit unique was just the prosperity of the Greenwood neighborhood. Yes. And uh, Tulsa is, wasn't the only Black Wall Street, so to speak. But what's interesting is, and I think it would be as we're having a conversation about what to teach in school, I'm okay if they don't want to talk too much about slavery, but slavery did occur and we know that it existed because we've got an Emancipation Proclamation. But why aren't we talking about the Black Wall Street or some of the more successful individuals who managed through a lot of uh, difficulties to move forward? But a lot of folks had never heard of the Black Wall Street. And I'm understanding that it was not the first Black Wall Street, the one that they attribute the first Black Wall Street to being is a community called Jackson Ward in Richmond, Virginia. And it kind of developed similarly the way that Tulsa did right after slavery. And also after the Freedmen's Bank uh, was busted, because one of the things that Lincoln set up 
when well, with the Emancipation Proclamation was the Freedmen's Bureau. And there was a Freedmen's Bank, which uh, took in deposits from many African-Americans. But because of corruption and poor decision making, it went bust, which is one of those reasons where you have distrust in the African-American community for banking institutions, because a lot of people lost money back then. Right. Right. Well, so last summer was the 100th anniversary of the riot, and it was marked by the city of Tulsa, and it received widespread news coverage. And I imagine that for many people, that was their first exposure to the fact that this community existed and that this riot took place. And of course, it brought your article to mind and how back when we published it, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and the destruction were really unknown. And we even had a bit of pushback on the article because some readers thought that the coverage was unfair to present day Tulsa. But of course, that was never our intention. Really, the point of the article was to shed light on the fact that this very vibrant community existed and then it was extinguished. Exactly. And to go forward, Tulsa is just one example of vibrant communities that existed and for some reason they were extinguished. My concern when I think about Tulsa and what Greenwood had, I look at five, at least five generations of what we call generational wealth that never was transferred from 1920 to this day. And that to me is a tragedy as well as a travesty because we talk about the inequities of black income compared to other incomes in this country. And the transfer of generational wealth is a big part of that. Yes, it is. The musical interlude we just heard was from a composition by Florence Smith Price, an African-American classical composer who was active in the time period we've been discussing. She received her degree from the New England Conservatory of Music in 1906 with honors and had a successful career as a composer, performer, and teacher. Despite her accomplishments, after her death in 1953, Price's work was mostly forgotten. It has been rediscovered in recent years, however, and is enjoying a revival being recorded by a new generation of artists, performed in concert halls, and played on classical music radio stations. The excerpt we heard from the piece Fantasy Negra was performed by Dr. Samantha Ega. So Vi, you alluded to this a moment ago that Besides the Greenwood neighborhood, that there were other Black Wall Streets and other successes. Can we talk a little bit more about those? Well, as I shared, Anne, the one that I'm most familiar with is what they call Jackson Ward in Richmond, Virginia. Remember, Richmond, Virginia is a southern state, but the community that grew out of that area was very much ambitious and industrious, just like those the folks in Tulsa. 
And they really, you know, took off in terms of turning their community into one that anyone would want to come in and visit. So the interesting thing about um, Jackson Ward is that it happened to be in Virginia. And if you lived in that area, you knew about it. But if you lived outside of Virginia, you may not have ever heard of it. Another one was Bronzeville in Chicago, similar. You know, you had a group of uh, up and coming black professionals who were leading the community at the time. One that I'm not familiar with is Haiti, almost like pronounced like the country Haiti, but it's H-A-Y-T-I in Durham, North Carolina. I had never heard of that one or Sweet Auburn in Atlanta. Now that one is a little bit familiar to me because of the significance of Atlanta back during the Confederacy as well as now. And then there was West 9th Street in Little Rock, Arkansas or Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi. But outside of these states, you probably didn't know a whole lot about them because either no one either talked about them or they just kind of dismissed it as, oh, well, it's not all that, I guess. And we don't want to forget Harlem, you know, which we everyone knows about the Harlem Renaissance and everything else. But there was a lot of Black money that went through Harlem and fueled a lot of the good things that were going on there. Right, right. So I guess really our point is that Greenwood was one of a number of such neighborhoods. They didn't necessarily suffer the same fate as Greenwood, but for various reasons, little is known other than Harlem, of course. Little is known about these areas of really great accomplishment and prosperity. One more thing I want to add, Anne, the composer Florence Smith Price, and I'm looking to see that she got her degree from the New England Conservatory of Music in 1906. A lot of folks forget that African-Americans were being educated despite all of the other challenges against us. And she was just one of many who went on to college, who went on to get master's and PhDs during a time that was very difficult. And for some institutions, they were accepted, but they weren't accepted, but they were accepted and they were able to earn their degrees And in some states, you couldn't attend a university or college in that state. And I'm always proud to say that I'm a proud graduate of Howard University. If there was no college that you could attend in the United States because the states didn't allow it, there was was one that you could go to, and that was Howard University in Washington, D.C. And that's why it was established, so that freed men would have at least one place in the country to get in higher education. Right. I think Florence Smith Price, when she got her degree at the New England Conservatory, I think that was paralleled pretty much Carter Woodson's degree from Harvard, because yeah. I believe that was about 1906 as well. That's right. And then Oberlin College in Ohio, near where I'm from, Oberlin had been a place on the Underground Railroad. So there are still homes today in Oberlin where you can go and see where people hid. But they opened up Oberlin College to blacks, to former slaves and so on. And I believe the first woman to receive a degree there who is African-American did so also in the early 1900s. So there was a lot of achievement that I think, as you say, has been forgotten or overlooked that was taking place, you know, in the post-Civil War era that, you know, people just don't have any consciousness or awareness of. No. And if you think about it from today's perspective and the argument, you read in history books about slavery 
or you might read about some of the challenges that African-Americans or people of color have today, but you don't hear about all of these wonderful people that we've been talking about or the various neighborhoods that came along afterwards. So I, I definitely say that we could definitely use a rewrite on history, and it has nothing to do with the critical race theory that so many people are up in arms against about which isn't being taught in public schools anyway. <laughs> no, no, it's a completely different topic, a different subject. Well, why don't we talk about today? So is there a Black Wall Street today? And what would that be? Where would that be? Well, there is a Black Wall Street online. And uh, I suppose that it was created with the same ideas or thoughts of having the uh, significance of what the uh, Tulsa neighborhood was back in the day. Let's bring that forward. And it's online in a digital format. And as indicated, uh, it's been it's grown in the last five to 10 years by persons of color to, who are allowed to promote their businesses. One of the things that's nice about this format is that you can do business with anybody in the United States and not just those in your neighborhood. So that's how the Black Wall Street today, which is an online website, is different than Tulsa or uh, the Jackson Ward in Richmond is not neighborhood based. It's for anyone who wants to do business with vendors on that site. I also mentioned that I'm a member of the Matthews Business Network, and I've only been a member for about a year. And the network's only been around for six years, but it's now in 12 regions, which includes some international countries. And it's a group of professionals who come together to business with each other, help each other promote their business, lift each other up, and help others do the same. And so it's been a wonderful organization to be a part of. And I've learned so much uh, that would have been so helpful to me when I started my business back in 2001. Is there anything else? There's also the Greenwood Bank. And I did look into that, which was uh, started by Andrew Young. And it's uh, a guy named, uh, is it Big Mike? <laughs> I don't want to teach you, but Killer Mike, Killer Mike. Killer oh. Mike is a, is, a, is a rap artist. Okay. <laughs> uh, he, former Ambassador Andrew Young and uh, one other person started this uh, Greenwood Bank. Again, goes back to the roots of the Tulsa race riot. So it's a former Atlanta mayor, Andrew Young, entertainer Michael Render, who's also known as Killer Mike, and Bounce TV founder Ryan Glover. They launched a new digital bank that's focused on developing and promoting local communities and cultivating Black and Latinx entrepreneurs and small businesses. And that was started in 2020. A lot of that uh, was given with the thought of the pandemic and the issues that came anytime you have a problem like the pandemic or the Great Recession. Oftentimes, your small businesses are decimated. And, and listen, that's any small business, regardless of the ethnicity of the owner. But we also know that oftentimes the Black-owned or, or Latin-owned businesses tend to suffer more. So they started this bank with angel investors to provide an opportunity for businesses of color to get loans and to also get uh, financial advice and business advice to move forward. Isn't there also a Shop Black Week? There is a Shop Black Week that is promoted by the Small Business Administration. And typically the Shop Black Week, interestingly, starts the week before Black Friday. And so they promote it as an opportunity to give emphasis to small-owned businesses of color. And it, it ends on uh, Black Friday, which is the beginning of small business because it ends on Black Friday because the next day is Small Business Saturday. 
So right. there's a shop black week. And then there's some other, I've seen some other organizations promote shop black weeks throughout the year, but I guess it just depends on the organization. I can't say that I've seen one that has been necessarily consistent in doing it, but just the fact that they do it, I think is a good thing. Right. Right. Well, so let's go back to that original article you wrote and it was titled a segregation of memory, the 1921 Tulsa riot. And when we were brainstorming a title for this podcast, we came up with a variation on that idea, you know, and that variation is really asking a question. It's segregation of memory or selective amnesia. So let's talk a little bit about the difference in meaning between those things. And I guess as we have this discussion also in mind that there are remedies and there are antidotes to things like selective amnesia. So your thoughts, by So when I think of segregation, first thing that comes to mind growing up in the South is separation. And so you're separating out things that you don't want to discuss from what either is discussable. And in some cases, maybe none of it's discussable. So when you say it's a segment, this is how I remember it happening versus does it reflect the facts of what happened? I'm so often reminded of the comment that form uh, that the, I think it's Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan would say, you're entitled to your opinions, but you're not entitled to your facts. And so <laughs> when you separate out a memory, when you bring forward only what you want to discuss, obviously when you leave out certain facts, it kind of skews your thinking or the person who's hearing it, it may skew their view on it. Now, when it comes to selective amnesia, to me, that's a bit more rogue in that <laughs> you're purposely choosing to not discuss or forget things for that purpose. And you definitely are attempting to reestablish your facts as my opinions are my facts and this is the way that I see it. So to me, the selective amnesia is a more roguish way of saying, I'm, this is my narrative and this is what happened. I would say it's a very intentional. <laughs> it is very intentional. Yes. So I want to go back actually to your moment in the salon and the significance of your hairdresser's ability to tell the story, you know, and it's been more than 20 years since you learned it. And now I'm thinking with the tools of the internet, we can all find little aspects of history and bring them into our awareness and consciousness. So I'd like to ask our listeners, what interests you and what hidden stories might you find? How finding some undiscovered little nugget might change or enhance your understanding of the world? Let us know and share what you discover and let us know if it caused you to change your perspective or opened your eyes to something you never considered before. So we'd love to have you comment and respond on our social media let us know what you think. Let us know what you find. And Vi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Yes, and it has been a fascinating conversation. It's also as a walk down memory lane when I pulled this all together. And it's we're continuing to find out more. You know, who knew 20 years ago we'd be having this conversation in a public discourse about, exactly. about exactly. uh, Black Wall Street versus it was just you and me together. And we thought this would be a good idea for a Black history topic for the magazine. Right, right. Yeah, hard to believe that we've known each other 20 years or more. <laughs> more or more. 
Yeah. So I'm Ann Perusik, and from all of us at SWE, thanks for listening. Please check out the blog on All Together. That's altogether.swe.org that accompanies this podcast for links to the historic references and more. Let's close with some more music by Florence Smith Price. And remember that Black history is American history and it's made every day. enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to leave us a review and share this episode with your social network. Thanks for listening.